Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor to be here. Thank you, Ross, for that warm welcome. It is an honor to be here. Uh, it's a blessing. I feel at home here. Um, I love the, uh, the countryside, the topography. It reminds me where I was born. I come from a place called New Zealand on the Pacific uh, uh, coast. And um, yeah, a lot of the greenery here. And uh, the wine reminds me of places in Israel, the Golan Heights. So, um, and I, I hate to say this, but a little bit of the fires remind me of what's going on in Israel right now. If you've been watching the news, we have some uh, unfriendly neighbors that are sending over kites and drones and setting them afire and burning our fields and our vineyards. But... Um, Anyhow, it is, it's great to be here. Uh, I've been in Minnesota. In fact, they tell me in Minnesota that they're getting some of the smoke from California. Uh, there and also from Canada to uh, Minnesota. So my heart goes out to you guys. I saw some of the, the areas just nearby, what happened. And um, yeah, tragedies. And you know, when we were singing that song, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, one, one thing I say on my tours, the key to understanding the Bible, the one key word was what? Someone remember? Well. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Trust a smart pastor to say that, right? The one key word that I always say that will help all of us understand the Bible more and more is context. Context, every verse you read, look at its context. What was going on at the time, historically, culturally, socially, and it will open up the Bible for you. So when we were singing that song, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord, what was the context in the Bible that that was written? It was when Job had lost everything. And he said, the Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Hard thing to say when you're, you're facing tragedies. And as I was thinking of that, I thought of a verse from Revelation 21, 21. It says that, talking about the new Jerusalem, it says that the gates will all be made of pearl and the streets will be made of gold and it will be like glass. And uh, we're gonna be part of that new Jerusalem one day. We have this great hope that what goes on in this world in the light of eternity is gonna just seem so insignificant. In the meantime, it's a struggle, but we're gonna be pearls, we're gonna be gold, and we have that gold in us, the Lord. But you know how pearls are made? Pearls are made when an oyster is going along the bottom of the sea and it will wound itself. It will cut itself on the sand and then it will bleed. 
And that blood, which is its life, will actually transform it into a pearl. That's how a pearl is made. And you know, we can be thankful that we, all of us here, we are the ones, we are kind of like the sand and we wound the Lord Jesus with our sins. And through his death, through his blood, through his giving his life, he transforms us. Isn't that a miracle? And that's a little bit about what I wanna talk about tonight. One thing I say at the beginning of each tour <clears throat> is a, t- a tour is like life. It's a journey. It's a journey of discovery. You know, that's what life is all about, right? We're constantly discovering more and more about who we are, more and more about who God is, and of course, more and more of His creation, the wonders of His creation. And uh, there's a f- one of my favorite quotes from the man who was asked to be the first president of the state of Israel in 1948, and he refused. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Well, Ben-Gurion, he became the prime minister, but I'm talking about our president. He was asked to be the president. He refused. He was voted Time Magazine's man of the 20th century. Albert Einstein. He had a quote that goes kind of like this. Life is like a hamster. Have you ever seen a hamster on a wheel? Goes round and round and round and round and round and round. And he said, we're like a hamster and all the time that we're on the wheel, we're looking at our past, our present and our future. And in that is the element of time. And there we find the holiness of God. And I've quite often pondered on that quotation and kind of tried to reconcile it with the Scriptures. And you know, Paul puts it in a different way where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And our salvation, you know, we have to apply it to our past. We have to apply the cross to our past, our present, and work it out for our futures. And I think, you know, there's no better book in the Bible to me than the book of Genesis, which is a kind of a picture of a a, a journey of salvation. It starts, of course, with uh, not only creation, but the creation of one man. And then it turns into a bit of a tragedy because the whole earth is, uh, has become corrupted and then you've got the flood. And then after the flood, you go from created man to the calling of a man. And that of course was Abraham and then his son Isaac and then Jacob. And um, I just was reading an article the other day and uh, the article was, uh, the beginning, it says, you know, the founder of our nation was a liar. He was a cheat, or he is a cheat, a liar, a deceiver, uh, an over-competitive person. And I'm thinking, you know, how can they talk about our Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu like this? And it was actually an article about Jacob. 
And it's funny, but it's true. <clears throat> he was one of our founders. And, um, you know, if you look at the patriarchs, the three main patriarchs, um, you know, out of, the th- out of all the three of them, the most, you know, terrible, uh, if that's the right word, was probably Jacob, uh, the, the deceiver, even in the womb. He was competitive. He wanted to get out first. Uh, and then we know he was a cheater and he was a bit of mummy's boy when his mother told him to dress up in the hairy arms and deceive his half-blind father, Isaac. And uh, he just went along with what she said. And then the whole f- uh, arguments with his uncle, uh, Laban. And, uh, <clears throat> and then it came to a bit of a climax You know, there are many defining moments in Jacob's life, very defining, like in our lives, very defining moments that we look back, maybe at school, when we were humiliated, when we were hurt, when we graduated, whatever, defining moments in our lives. And Jacob, one of his defining moments, of course, is when he had a dream uh, of the angels ascending and descending the ladder to heaven, and he uh, he woke up, and uh, he's you know he all these years running away from God, he comes out with this wow, you know God is actually in this place. I didn't even know it, and he calls the name of that place Bethel, Bethel, the house of God, and then he makes a vow and he says you know God if you be my God if you uh, Uh, give me food to eat and water and bring me back to my father's house, then everything that you give me, I will give you a tenth. You remember that story? Have you ever contemplated who the first Jewish businessman in the world was? It was Jacob. (laughs) Think about it. He was saying, God, you give me a hundred, I'll give you 10 back. (laughs) Really, that's what he was doing. God, whatever you give me, I'll give you a tenth back. What a deal. (laughs) And then the other real defining moment is many years after he had deceived his brother Esau. And by the way, if you don't know this, uh, a lot of people ask, what is the root problem of the Middle East? What's going on? And, um, you know... Really, uh, well, we could say, you know, on a spiritual level, it's the devil. He hates God's people. He hates God's name. He's trying to discredit his word. And so behind the scenes, it's the devil, and that would be correct. But also, there's a couple of instances regarding the patriarchs where we can trace the root problem back to it. Number one is when uh, Abraham was told he's gonna have a son and God's gonna bless his son and through him all the nations will be blessed. And they tried to have the son and they were a failure and nothing was going right. So Sarah, his wife, she said, why don't you go and sleep with Hagar? Maybe we can help God fulfill his promise. (laughs) And you know, Abraham, he didn't want to, you know, uh, get into an argument with his wife or upset his wife. So he, you know, he obeyed and, and who was born? Ishmael. Ishmael. 
And when Ishmael was born, God said, he will be a wild donkey of a man. He will fight against his brothers. And uh, later on, uh, Abraham wanted uh, God to bless his son, Ishmael. And the Lord said, yes, he will be a ruler of 12 princes. Yes, I will bless him. His territory will be here, here, and here, which is in the uh, Levant, the area of the, um, uh, Mes- what's in ancient times called Mesopotamia. But my covenant will be with Isaac. So there was a strong, distinguished, um, two different blessings here. And then, of course, a little bit later on, Rebecca. Uh, she, had, she was pregnant with twins and she was complaining of the pain in her stomach. And God said, in your belly are two nations and they will fight against each other. And that, of course, was Jacob and Esau. And so today we can trace our troubles back to these two biblical historical stories. Very interesting. So... Sometime later, when uh, after Jacob had d- deceived his brother, when his brother Esau found, about it, found out about it, he tried to kill his brother Jacob and Jacob had to flee. Many years later, Jacob wanted peace with his brother. And so he sends his servants with a, uh, a, a kind of a recompense, uh, package gift, which was the culture of the day, if similar to the laws of Moses, the uh, rewards and, damage, and damages. And if you look in some Jewish commentaries like the Talmud and the Mishnah, they will go through this in depth. Um, if you have caused damage here, what are some of the uh, requirements? <clears throat> and so Jacob, he tried to appease his brother Esau, the the script, the text in uh, Genesis 32 tells us that Esau, uh, sorry, that Jacob's servants came back and gave Jacob this report. Your brother is coming with 400 men. And Jacob thought, this is it. So what did he do? He split up his family into two camps Machanayim in Hebrew. He sent one across the Jordan, just in case one camp was taken out, the other would bear his name, which was a very, very important cultural aspect. And then he sends the other party ahead and he's left all alone. And we're at Genesis 32. And this was a real defining moment that's gonna happen in Jacob's life. It says that he was left all alone at a place called the Jabbok, which was a part of the Jordan River. He was left all alone and he wrestled all night. Now, does anyone know who he wrestled with? Some say God. Some say Yahweh, some say Jesus. Well, in Genesis 32, it doesn't say any of that. I think you're all right. 
but it doesn't say it in the text. It just says he wrestled with a man. In English, it says a man. In Hebrew, it says a man, ish. It says he wrestled all night until the breaking of the day, but who was he wrestling with? He said, what is your name? Or at least this man said to Jacob, what is your name? And he said, my name is Jacob. And then he said, what is your name? And the man didn't tell him his name. And this is one of the mysteries of, um, I think, walking a walk of faith. Who is this man? It turns out, actually to be God, Yahweh, or perhaps Jesus. Because at the end of that story, it says he called the name of the place Peniel, which in Hebrew means the face of God. And he call, it says he called the name of the place Peniel for he saw God's face and lived. And by the way, this is a really good passage. If ever you're talking to someone Jewish who doesn't believe in uh, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. One of the big stumbling blocks for Jewish people to believe that is traditionally Jewish people do not, cannot believe that God can appear in bodily form. And I think this is one of the best passages to prove that. In any event, um, the name of this place that Jacob was wrestling was called the Jabok. Now in Hebrew, jabok literally means to be poured out. It's actually from the same root word as a bottle. Yabok in Hebrew, jabok. And the word for a bottle is bakbuk. Bakbuk, yabok. And by the way, it's interesting, if you actually pour out water, what is the noise that it makes? Bok, 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 bok. <laughs> and there's something prophetic here. Because this was the place that Jacob was being emptied out. Why? Because God was gonna transform him into Israel. And that's what happened. When Jacob knew that this man that he was wrestling with was some, someone a little bit more important than just a man, even though Jacob was winning, you know, it's kind. I think it's almost like when a father's wrestling with his, with his son. You know, he lets his son beat him, but then when it's time, he just pins his son down. <laughs> because God said, this man said to Jacob, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you as a man have overcome both man and God. You have overcome. But your name will now be called Israel, which means there's a twofold interpretation. One is you will be straight, you will walk straight, Yashael, Yisrael. And the other interpretation, Yisar El, you will be a, a prince with God, El. And this was this transforming moment. And this was the call to his grandfather, Abraham. Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. That's why God blesses us, right? So that we can be a blessing. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. You will be a light 
to the nations. Jacob, you're a deceiver, you're a liar, you're a cheat. I'm gonna transform you. I'm gonna break you. I'm gonna cause you pain only to transform you into a prince with me. And that's what happened. And out of all the three patriarchs, if you look at the, 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 the end of their lives, I mean, uh, Abraham, we, we, you know, we revere him, but he had some issues, you know? Guys, what, what, how would your wives respond if you lied and said, you know, she's just my sister? Come on. He did it twice. Uh, Isaac was far from perfect. He certainly, when he blessed, he was kind of a little bit, you know, blind. He made some mistakes there. Jacob, who was the deceiver, look at the end of his life. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about this tomorrow. When his son Joseph is discovered that he's alive, Jacob goes down to Egypt. And what does he do? The first thing he does when he comes to Egypt, it says he blessed the Pharaoh. No longer is he taking, no longer is he deceiving. He's fulfilling the promise to his father. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. He blesses his father. And then just before he dies, it's no longer about Jacob. He blesses his 12 sons. Study those blessings. They're awesome. They're amazing. They're so prophetic. They're so deep. They're so rich. And we're seeing some of the fulfillment today. And part of that blessing, of course, on one of his sons, Judah, is that, from Judah's line would come the Messiah, the Lion of Judah. And, uh, and then of course, you know, what, a, what a, an incredible end to his life. And this gives us hope, doesn't it? Gives us all hope. Today, we are, you know, the, the, the lost tribes or the lost sons of Jacob because that's who the tribes are. Ladies and gentlemen, they are returning back to the land. They lived in the land for many centuries. The Lord brought them out of Egypt. And you know, this was part of the journey for Abraham's seed. You know, he gives them this covenant promise. And did you notice that when God made a covenant with Abraham, part of the package deal he said, oh, by the way, Abraham, you know, you need to read the, the, the small print. Your descendants are gonna be in slavery for 400 years. You still wanna sign up. And uh, isn't that interesting? Part of the covenant promise to Abraham was that your children will be enslaved. It's pretty, pretty tough. And have you ever asked yourself, what kind of faith or what kind of religion his children had for those 400 years when they were in slavery? Because the Bible actually doesn't say much about it. What did they do? How did they survive? They didn't have the laws of Moses. That came later. They didn't have any Bible. So what kind of religion did they have? Any thoughts? I think you're right. I think it was an oral tradition. 
In other words, when they sat around the tables, they told the stories like I'm telling you. They were storytellers. That's what Jesus was. He was a good storyteller. He used nature. He used history. And they talked about their grandfathers and Abraham and Sarah. And when Sarah heard that, you know, in a year's time, she's gonna be pregnant, she laughed and God said, don't laugh. And she said, I didn't laugh. And God said, yes, you did. And, you know, they probably laughed about it. (laughs) And they carried on these traditions and they clung on to some hope that one day the deliverer would come. And he came. And they, then they spent that 40 years in the wilderness. And then they, God fulfilled His promise by bringing them into this land, this one geographical place of, in all the world that was infested by these Canaanite different conglomeration of peoples that were into worshiping all kinds of different gods and even offering up their children to these gods. And they had to go in and it said that they looked like grasshoppers in their eyes and it was a land with giants and fortified cities. And um, you know, what weapons were God gonna give them when they were to go into this land? They needed weapons, they needed ammunition. You know the weapon that God gave them? Joshua chapter one. The new leader. Moses is now gone. Like when you're working somewhere and you've had a boss or a pastor for many years, he moves on. There's someone new, a new kid on the block. How's it gonna be? How's he gonna lead? How's he gonna, is he gonna change things? Joshua's got this huge responsibility and someone shouted out what this weapon was. Listen to what, the, what weapon the Lord gave to Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart from out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Be strong, be courageous. Then you will be prosperous, then you will be successful. That was the the strategy, that was the weapon. And that's all Joshua took. The mystery of carrying a whole nation with just the belief that you have heard the voice of God, what a responsibility. What a step of faith. And again, And Paul uses this word mystery because the whole walk of faith on our journey of life, it really is a mystery. And sometimes we don't know, is it, like remember when Paul wrote to Corinth, he said, this is me, not the Lord. And then another time he said, this is the Lord, not me. And sometimes, is it the Lord Jesus? Is it God the Father? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it just my intention? intuition. When Moses was the leader, it says in one verse that he spoke face to face with the Lord as a man speaks with his friend. You know what the next verse says? God said, my back you can see, but my face you can't see. 
What's the writer trying to do? Confuse us? What's going on? And Jacob calls the place Peniel because he saw God's face and lived. And Abraham invites three men into his tent. And all of a sudden he's talking to Yahweh, God. What's going on? Who, who is it? Like Jacob says, who are you? Paul on the road to Damascus when he was blinded. What do you, remember what he said? Who are you, Lord? Who are you? The mystery. And you'll notice that Jacob had to wrestle for the blessing. He said, I won't let you go until you bless me. And I used to wrestle and it's intense. It's tiring. And it says, you know, he wrestled to the breaking of day. And I remember when I was in the Israeli army, the worst part of doing guard duty was those last three hours from three to six in the morning. They were the worst. That was the coldest. It was the darkest. It was the most tiring. And you were just waiting for that light to come. And that's a picture of our wrestle. It can sometimes be a long time when you're trying to find answers in life, when you're trying to get that breakthrough in life. God, I need you. I don't need an answer. I need you. You will give me the answer. I need a breakthrough here. I won't let you go. Friends, don't let go. Whatever you're wrestling with, whatever answer you want, just go to Him, run to Him, whatever it takes. And sometimes it, it costs us because the Lord touched Jacob's hip and he was wounded. He knew he'd been in a wrestling match, but it was the transforming moment when he was emptied and he was transformed into Israel. So when the Israelites came into the land and they started, you know, kicking these people out, Sometime later, they get a, a temple. After the tabernacle, they get a more permanent house. But sometime later, because of their mistakes, because of their backward ways, because they followed the ways of the world and the surrounding peoples, their temple, their holy place was destroyed. And they were exiled. Now it's number two exile. Number one was in Egypt. Number two is in Babylon. They come back. And then, of course, during the time of King Herod, 2,000 years ago, Herod builds a new temple and it was destroyed in AD 70. And the Jewish people, God's covenant people, were dispersed and have been dispersed for almost 2,000 years. Our God, our invisible God, and this is one, gonna be one of my themes tomorrow morning, He has been working. He has been working among the Gentiles. Because, and I'm sure you know this, 2,000 years ago when the Messiah was revealed in the flesh, He mainly came for His Jewish people, 
Remember what he said, I have not come but for the house of Israel. Of course, you know, Gentiles would be uh, grafted in sometime later. But, uh, you know, you need to know this if you don't know, that according to our famous historian, Flavius Josephus, I'm sure you've heard of him, he tells us that during the Second Temple period, there were 24 different Jewish sects or groups. Some of them we know from the Apocrypha, from the Talmud, the Mishnah, the New Testament. One of those 24 Jewish groups began like this. A 30-year-old Jewish man from Nazareth comes with a backpack. I'm re-narrating the story here. He comes with a backpack. He walks into a little town when he left Nazareth. Where did he go? Does anyone remember? Where was his new home? Capernaum. He comes into Capernaum, village of about two and a half, three thousand people, right on the middle of the northern uh, Lake of Galilee. And what does he do? He goes to a few fishermen and he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Three young men, probably teenagers, follow him. Friends, that's how it all began. That's it. You know what I say? I say, John was not a Baptist. Mary was not a Catholic. And Jesus was not a Christian. Context, go back 2,000 years ago. It's true, right? Jesus came into Capernaum. He calls those who would follow him and three men followed him. That's how it began. And then that three grew to 12 and then it grew to 70 and then it grew to 120 and then it grew to 3,000 and then it grew to 5,000. Every one of them were Jewish. And then something radical happens, a Gentile joins in. And that's another story, we'll get into that some other time. But basically for the last 2,000 years, our God has been bringing Gentile people to an understanding. Their eyes have been opened, just like those first 5,000 Jews, to who the Messiah is. There's promises in the Bible that one day God is going to open the eyes once again of His covenant people, Israel. And what we're seeing, interestingly, is we're seeing a return of those Jewish people back to the land. It started in the 1800s. It grew particularly in the 1930s when the Second World War started, the 1940s, Hitler, the Nazis, and then, of course, 1948, the state of Israel was born. We just celebrated the 70th anniversary of that. There was a man who stood up uh, uh, to the press of the world and he said that he's going to move the American embassy to Jerusalem. I don't know if you've heard about this. Do you know what happened when he announced that? There were posters and banners all over Israel, but particularly Jerusalem, and mostly ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox Jews were the ones who put up 
these banners. And the banners had a picture of Donald Trump. We love uh, Jerusalem. And it was all in red, white, and blue. No, I'm sorry. The poster had his picture and it said, we love Jerusalem. And the middle, in the middle of Jerusalem, the three middle letters in red, white, and blue are what? U-S-A. And that was all over Jerusalem. We love Jerusalem, Donald Trump's picture, USA. Love him or not, he did an incredibly brave thing. (laughs) And um, do not forget your ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, an incredible woman. If you don't know who I'm talking about, get on YouTube, look at some of her speeches. Look what she has done for Israel at the United Nations, incredible. And what she's fighting against there not to mention other members in his uh, cabinet, is that the right word? Yeah. And so the relations with the United States right now are very strong, very warm. We know that it could change at any moment, but we're enjoying it while we can. The peace process is not good. It's broken down. We have troubles on our northern border, on the Golan Heights. Uh, Syria has a civil war that's been going on for about eight years. I think it's about 350,000 people have died, been killed, murdered. Uh, I think about three million have fled. We have troubles on our southwestern border on the Gaza Strip. I mentioned that at the beginning, sending over drones and kites. But you know, not only do we have a good defense force, Navy, tanks, Air Force, which by the way, a big part of that is your tax money. Thank you. I'm serious. The the United States government sends us a certain amount of money each year toward our defense forces. Not only that, but we have millions of Christians who pray like we did for the peace of Jerusalem. And... um, I'm not an expert at end time prophecy, but I I do believe two key signs that the Lord uh, gave when He talked about the end days. And He, you know, He talked about wars and rumors of war, and that's been going on for centuries. But I believe two key signs. Number one, He said that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. And you ask Bible translators all around the world, uh, they will tell you that there's not too many places around the world where the Bible has not been translated into those languages. I don't know if there are uh, any that need that done yet. And the other uh, sign I believe is, is a very important sign. Jesus said this, he said, learn the parable of the fig tree. Again, context, go back 2,000 years ago. The fig tree to us today, what does that mean? Back 2,000 years ago, the fig tree was always a synonym for Israel. 
just like the olive tree, just like the vine. Isaiah chapter five, my beloved had a vineyard, talking about the people of Israel. The fig tree was another synonym for Israel. And the Lord said, learn the parable of the fig tree. When you see it beginning to blossom, know that your redemption is drawing nigh. Ladies and gentlemen, I could spend hours and hours talking about the incredible things that are happening in Israel. Inexplainable things. How in 70 years we have come from half a million Holocaust survivors who, you know, David Ben-Gurion, when he became our first Prime Minister, May the 7th, 1948, when the British who had been around for 30 years, when they left, Ben-Gurion had a window of opportunity to pronounce to the world, announce the state of Israel, our independence. It wasn't as easy as just standing up at a microphone and doing that. He knew that if he was to do it, he would be inviting a war. He knew it. And he was right because the day after he pronounced that, while there were celebrations among Jewish people and Christians who understood the Scriptures, eight Muslim surrounding nations declared war on us. This is called the War of Independence. And as I say, we were only about a half a million, mostly Holocaust survivors, very little weapons, very little water, muddy, swampy land, a lot of physically sick people from the concentration camps, not to mention emotionally and mentally sick people who had lost everything, status, identity, health, family. Menachem Begin, the leader of the opposition, he lost every single one of his 50 members of his family. When that war broke out, the newly formed German government offered the Israeli government money as part of the war reparations and Menachem Begin led a opposition against taking that money. He knew, well, he said, we do not want your blood money, thank you very much. <clears throat> and Ben-Gurion had another major decision on his hands. What do I do? If I take the money, I could save the nation, but I might lose my people. Tough decisions. He took the money, he really had no choice. And that lasted about six or eight months. These birth pains for the state of Israel. And that lasted for 19 years until 1967, the Six Day War, where we took over Judea and Samaria, which is the West Bank of Jordan. Politically, that's why it's called the West Bank, because it's on the West Bank of Jordan. We took the Golan Heights. And then we started to strengthen. Jewish people came back from all around the world as the prophets prophesied. I will bring you from the north and from the south. I will bring you from the ends of the earth, which they say, by the way, is New Zealand. From, from Israel, they say it's the furthest place. Then we had some hiccups along the way. The 1973 Yom Kippur War, 
where our Prime Minister at the time, Golda Meir, our one and only female Prime Minister, who they say at the time was the only man in the government. <laughs> and uh, it did not, not look good. It did not look good. And you gotta come to Israel and we'll tell some more of these stories. Because we're at the Golan Heights, we're looking at the land, we're telling the stories, the miracles against military strategists and historians. They cannot explain how, how the Israelis won these wars. But there've been a few heroes along the way, not to mention President Nixon, who in his own words, in his autobiography at the end of his life, he said, when I was a little boy, my mother said to me, Richard, one day you're gonna do something very special for the Jewish people. And all of his life, he didn't think about those words. The day that he and Alexander Haig signed the papers releasing weapons to help the Israeli Defence Forces, the day he signed that, the words of his mother came back to him. They were prophetic words. By the way, there's a story Golda Meir sends a telegram to Henry Kissinger, the Secretary of State, saying, Mr. Kissinger, we need weapons and we need them now. And don't forget, Mr. Kissinger, you are a Jew. Good Jewish guilt. <laughs> Mr. Kissinger wrote back, what did they call them in those days? Telegrams. Mrs. Meir, that's true, but first, I'm an American citizen. Second, I'm the Secretary of State, and third, I am a Jew. Mrs. Mayer, Golda Mayer, writes a telegram back. Mr. Kissinger, here in the Middle East, we read from right to left. First, you are a Jew. We have had about 15 wars. Do you know what a war does to the economy? It cripples the economy. You know more than anyone the money that it costs. I think I read the other day, your budget for your military for this coming year is I think $718 billion. That's a lot of money. And sadly, we need it. We need security. There's no question. You know, the, the, the old argument, I know there may be some pacifists here tonight. You know the old argument, the lesser of the two evils. You wanna be a pacifist? You wanna let people come and murder your children, your grandparents, your parents? That's evil. Or do you wanna go to war, which is also evil, but what's the lesser? of the two evil. That's an argument I use for fighting. But it's a, it's an, it's a, and by the way, during the Gaza war about four or five years ago, an ex-British officer, he sat in the engine room where all the top military echelon of the Israeli Defense Forces sit. And after that war, he had a report, he did a report, <clears throat> And he, this is what he said, not me. He said, inside of that room, apart from the military officers, there were people, there were top people from human rights 
watch group. There were top high court judges, justices, people from the United Nations sitting in that room and before the top military made any major decision, they complied within the laws of all these jurisdictions. He said, in the history of mankind and in the history of all the wars of mankind, there has never, ever been a more upright moral military than the Israeli Defence Forces. That is quite a statement from a British man. Now, I am not here tonight to paint the picture of the Jewish people and the state of Israel as being perfect. And, I've give, and I started off by saying, you know, the leader is a liar, a cheat. You know, we are still the sons of Jacob. We still have the same character. In fact, I could bring out a whole list of things that may shock you. And just to name a few, there are 30,000 reported abortions every year in Israel. Tel Aviv has now become the number one most gay-friendly city in the world. We have an ex-prime minister who is in prison, or he's just been released, seven years in prison for bribery and corruption. We have an ex-president who is still in prison for rape. So we are far from perfect. I always say we are no better, we are no worse than any other country in the world. What makes us different is we're chosen. We're chosen. We have a covenant. And that's what makes you and I different because we are just as sinful as every other person in the world. To put it in Paul's words, in me, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. But this is why God has to empty us out and fill us with Himself. And I believe this is the, the, the mystery of life on the journey of life. We go through, you know, Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to build up and there's a time to break down. Have you ever been through an emotional breakdown or you're, you're wrestling and emotionally you're breaking down. That's part of God's plan. There's a time to be broken down. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground, it will abide alone. But if it does die, it will bring forth much fruit. Do you know how wheat brings forth fruit? It has to be broken down. You have to crush it. You have to break it. And then you have to add water to it. And water is always symbolic in the Scriptures of life. So, or, or the Word. So don't be worried if that's what you're going through. Go into automatic pilot and let Lord, the Lord do what He wants. And that is transform us all till we all become pearls, gates in the new Jerusalem. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay. Let's pray, everyone. Hallelujah. Father, thank you. 
Thank you for the, the, the mystery of life for not only creating us, but calling us to be your sons, your daughters, to be vessels of light to a dark world, to the nations. Thank you, Lord, for the dealings that you put us through. And Lord, like Jacob, we, we will hold on to you, Lord. Who do we have in heaven but you, Lord? Where shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, we've tried the things of the world and they are just temporal, pleasing things. But Lord, you say that we should set our affections on things that are above and not on things of the earth. And so Lord, we wanna just join in with you, Lord. And we thank you. We thank you that your word gives us enlightenment. It gives us understanding that our wrestling, that our breaking down, that our getting wounded is not in vain, that there is a purpose behind it and that we're on this journey. And even though that the sufferings of this world are real, they are not to be worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And we thank You, Lord. We thank You mostly for Your Son, Yeshua, the one that we have wounded, the one that continues to pour out His blood, His life, that cleanses, that reconciles us, that transforms us into the pearls, the precious stones that You are making us. Lord, bless everyone here tonight. And thank You, Lord, as we sang before. Blessed be the Name of the Lord. Lord, You give, You take away, we will bless You, Lord, even when it hurts. Though You slay us, Lord, we will yet praise You. We will not, like Job, when the devil was tempting him to curse You. Lord, sometimes we get so hurt and offended, but we're not gonna do that. We're gonna trust You. We're gonna carry on fighting, Lord. And we bless You and we thank You. In Yeshua's Name, Amen. Well, praise the Lord. God, we're not done with you yet, though. We've got okay. about 10 minutes or so, but uh, I kind of promised them a little Q&A time. Yeah. Because uh, that's where you shine. I mean, you've been answering questions for a, a lot of questions for a long time. I wanted to add the context to the fig tree and why it's such a super sign. Because within 24 hours prior to that learn the parable, when you see the fig tree come to life, what's in their minds is the fig tree that he cursed. He walked by and said, may you not bear any fruit. And it withered. And so that's in their mind. And then he says, but learn, learn something here. Pay attention. When you see that once withered tree, Israel, coming back to life miraculously, then you will know that time is very near, even at the door, see? So we're excited, amen? amen? Now's not the time to be messing around, folks, all right? And we're in the last, if John says, we're beloved, we are in the last hour, and that was 2,000 years ago, what are we in now? We're in the last seconds right now, so praise the Lord. Hey. Maybe you've got a question. Now, let me give you some guidelines. 
because we've done this before. And then once in a while, there's somebody who wants to share their theologies and, and different things. This is a time where we've got the expert. We want to hear from him. So if you've got a question that would edify all of us about the Jewish people, about Israel, about history, about scriptures, anything in that uh, category, feel free to just stand up and fire away. So who's going to be first? There we go, Willie. I got a mic for Willie. We got a mic. Hold on, Willie. I got a mic? Okay. Yeah, when did the Lord open your eyes to see Christ as as the true Messiah? Uh, It was in New Zealand when I was uh, 19 years old. It was like uh, five years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. Um, I'll give you the very, very, very short version. I was an agnostic meaning I didn't know whether there was a God or not. Um, I was in a major car accident with my best friend. He was killed in that car accident. Wow. I started to ask some deep, you know, philosophical questions. I was very lost. I was what you would call a hedonist. I was like living for the pleasures of this world as much as I could get. And a Christian guy came into my, where I started, where I was working. He started working there and he just got on my face. And, um, you know, sometimes I give the A, B, C, Ds about how to evangelize Jewish people. And then I tell my testimony, which breaks all the rules. And he broke all the rules. You know, basically he gave me the four spiritual laws. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. You're self-centered. You're separated from God. You need to repent. And um, just, I felt heavily convicted. And um, it wasn't a real struggle for me. It was like God came looking for me. My struggle was what am I going to tell my Jewish mother? Yeah. So uh, that's a question. And I'm not joking. A lot of people ask, how can I witness to my Jewish friend? Witness, share the gospel. Share the gospel. Most people I talk to when they say, try to get out of a conversation with me and, and say, I, I'm Jewish, you know, like back off. And it's like, oh, Shalom, so am I, right? So when you talk to them, you just, I'll say Isaiah 53, and they'll say, a Jew. They'll say, Isaiah, what? They don't know. They don't know. You treat them like an average person who needs the gospel and that needs to get away from their fear their emptiness, their loneliness, their guilt, their shame. Those are the felt needs that all humans have, including those who like to label themselves Jews. And one thing that really made an impact, and I think it's universal, it's not just us Jewish people, this guy really loved in on me. Mm. And uh, we Jews, we humans, we're not used to that. We're used to rejection. And it made a huge impact. I was like, what's his issue? Yeah. Who doesn't like being loved, you know? Yeah. And um, so, yeah. Dude, I got saved at 19 too. But quite a few years before you. Uh, I thought you were younger than me. (laughs) Oh, yeah, older. Yeah, I think we're the same age. That was my schmoozing him. How old are you? (laughs) Wow. Grandfather Moses. You, you mentioned Isaiah 53. I turned 53. I love the way ago. you say Isaiah. 
And everything you People say... People say I have an accent. That's it crazy, sounds, right? It sounds so much better than Isaiah, you know? It's Isaiah, you know? All right, another question. Yeah, Dr. Crane. Oh, please. Oh, sorry. Oh, whoops. <laughs> Welcome to California. Thank you, Hello. sir. Good to see good, you. Good to see you. Oh, again, that's too. right. Yeah. He's on my bus. That's um, right. The scripture tells us that, uh, commands us, that we are to pay, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And that command's been there for 2,000 years. We probably don't do it real well. But my question is just how uh, we as um, Christians, and specifically American <coughs> Christians, what would be the most meaningful things uh, to pray for, and how can we best uh, support Israel in this time? You know, it sounds like an easy question, but it's right. actually a tough question. Right. Um, of course, praying for um, uh, the leaders of the nation, praying for the believers in the nation, that they would be uh, mm -hmm. that they would rise up in strength and unity. Is there any number about how many? Uh, it's it's evangelical estimated Christians? now. Uh, that there are maybe about 25,000 Jewish believers in Jesus. Mm. Now, when I immigrated to Israel about 28 years ago, uh, there was only about 2,000 of us. Mm. And so, you know, 25,000 doesn't sound like a lot. You go to Texas, you'll get one church that's 25,000. <laughs> but it is exciting to see growth. And uh, 28 years ago, we were looked upon as a Jewish cult. Mm. Now we're not looked upon like that. We are here. You can't get rid of us. <laughs> we're making an impact. We have people in our congregations that are in very high positions in society. In fact, literally one month ago, the front page of the Jerusalem Post uh, Vice Chairman of the Prime Minister's Communications Office is a Jew for Jesus. Oh, wow. That was the front page Praise of the, the Jerusalem Post. Praise the Lord. So we're, we're making, and so pray, pray for, for the, the believers mm -hmm. that we would rise up um, and, uh, and also pray for the Arab Christians as well. You know, uh, because praying for the peace of Israel, there are 1.8 million uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Arabs living in Israel. And when I say Arabs, probably about 65% of that 1.8 million are Muslim Arabs, 35% are Christian Arabs. And when I say Christian Arabs, everything you have to break down and uh, clarify, most of those Christians, Christian Arabs, are Catholic or Greek Orthodox. Right. And their theology is very different from us Jewish believers and probably you evangelicals. Mm -hmm. So these are just some ideas um, to, to pray for. I've got a question for you. Could you please, in a nutshell, clear up for dear people the whole idea that there's no such thing as a Palestinian person? Can you just explain to people who, who we're talking about and the label of Palestinian and Palestine where that came from, Okay. Explain. Well, the, the easiest way 
And if you don't get it now, you have to, is this being recorded? Yeah. Either listen over or get a book because sometimes it takes repetition. But in the year 135 AD, Hadrian, correct, the land which we call today Israel, it was called Judea, okay? Before that, it was called Canaan. But now it was changed from Canaan to Judea. But the Roman emperor didn't like the Jewish people. He didn't like Christians as well. And what did he do is he banned all the Jews from Jerusalem. And he changed the name from Judea. And he called it, he changed Jerusalem to Elia Capitolina. And then he changed the whole region from Judea and he called it Palestina Secunda. And the reason why he did that, historians would tell you, scholars would tell you, is that he hated the Jewish people so much because he just overcame the zealots and the second revolt against the Romans that he wanted to change the name to one of the Jewish people's ancient arch enemies, the Philistines. So he called it Palestina Philistina. Palestina Sekuna. So this is the key to really, if you can get this, by calling uh, that region Palestina or Palestine, it was anglicized to Palestine, it doesn't mean that there was any ethnic people called mm-hmm. the Palestinians. The Philistines died out. The Philistines by that stage had died out. So it was a geographical region. Mm-hmm. Get it? That's what it is. It's not tied Palestine to any race. is a geographical region. Just remember that. And it lasted as a geographical region until 1948 when we changed it to Israel. Now, why is it so controversial? I'll tell you why. The Arab people living in that land at the time, many of them called themselves Jordanians. Many called themselves British. Many called themselves Jews. Many called themselves Turkish. Many called themselves Arabs. No one was, it wasn't an issue back then. This is the issue. In 1948, the United Nations unanimously voted for the State of Israel. You know that. Every single surrounding Arab nation rejected the United Nations vote. They just simply said, we don't agree with it. We don't recognize Israel. The rest of the world, including the United States, including Russia, They all recognize this is now the state of Israel. Fact. The Arabs said, no, we don't want to recognize it. We want to call ourselves by the name that it was yesterday, Palestine. So we, instead of calling ourselves Israelis, Mm. we want to identify and call ourselves Palestinians. And by the way, a lot of the Arabs who were living there they were offered Israeli citizenship Mm -hmm. by the new Israeli government. And many of those Arabs took Israeli citizenship. And they live in Israel today and they're called Israeli Arabs. They don't call themselves Palestinians. 
there were two names for that piece of property. Canaan, Judah, Israel. That's it. From God's point of view, that's what he calls that region of the world. So that's where it came from. A, somebody who hated Israel and wanted to name it after the Philistines. So really, in my opinion, if you want to see, there's two ways of looking at that land. I always say this, and it might help you. If some of you think I'm being a little bit biased, you know, I'm, I'm never biased. Neither am I. Or exaggerate. Um, you Me can either. look at the situation politically, and you can look at the situation spiritually. Meaning, you can look at it through the eyes of politics, through newspapers, through Fox, through CNN, through the BBC, politically. And then you can look at it spiritually through the eyes of the Bible, through the eyes of God's prophetic word. Sometimes they go hand in hand. 1948, that was a political event, but was that biblical prophecy being fulfilled, you know, the restoration of Israel? I would say it is. So they go hand in hand. Yeah, can a nation be born in a day? Exactly. Uh, answer, yeah. <laughs> yes. So be careful how you interpret it, and it will help you differentiate, and it will help you not to be biased, because, you know, I can be guilty of coming across, you know, like, there's nothing wrong with Israel, we're perfect, and you should just love us and reject the Arabs. That's not my well, intention the at all. Bible calls us to speak with kindness and love. And so uh, that is always front and center, right? You could be right about a position and wrong in the way you deliver the words and the message, amen? So yes. God wants us to be on the same page with the truth and with speaking in love, right? Amen, I think we have time for maybe one more. Right here. Well, the ladies first, bro, sorry. Oh, two ladies, uh-oh. <laughs> that could be a trouble, go ahead. Uh, my question is, what is the Orthodox Jews um, view of the rebuilding of the temple? And will they, is their plan with it, the mosque there? Or is their idea of it without the mosque? Yeah, so there's a rumor oh. out that you got, there's some Orthodox folks, the temple loving, folks over there, they're starting to, you know, mint coins and, you know, they got all the, the, the paraphernalia. They've appointed some Pharisees and Sadducees. And they have, though. Yeah, all of that. Yes. Everything. That's a great question. It's a big question. Um, in short, Orthodox Jews believe that before the Messiah comes, two key things have to happen. Number one, the Jewish people have to return back home. And number two, the temple has to be rebuilt. In fact, some Orthodox Jews don't even agree with the state of Israel. They, don't, they believe this is a, a, a man-made state. They don't believe in the state. They believe when the Messiah comes, then there will be a state. But that's another topic. So... The Jewish people are coming back, so they see this as a messianic age. What about the temple? It's a problem because if you don't know, right in the middle of Jerusalem, there is what's called the Temple Mount. 
And on, on that temple mount, there is a golden dome, which is a Muslim shrine, mm. and there is a mosque called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That is the only place that the Jewish people will ever build the temple, up on that. It's Mount Moriah, by the way, the place of the binding of Isaac. Remember who built the first temple? It was Solomon, but it was actually David's vision. Mm. But David wasn't allowed to build that temple because he had blood on his hands. and He was a man of war. So Orthodox Jews say, we better not fight. We better not force the hand of God. Otherwise, we won't be able to build it. So what are they doing? They're waiting for God to do it. Right. In the meantime, they're doing what they can. Like you said, Ross, they've got the cornerstones. They're breeding red heifers. Yep. They've got the priestly garments, the priestly tools. There's a Sanhedrin. There is a Sanhedrin. They're doing all they can. They've got the money. Um, very quickly, some of the theories, how it's going to happen, number one, is there will be some natural disaster, an earthquake will hit the shrine in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, it'll be wiped out. Of course, we Jews will get blamed for that. But uh, that area, which is part of the Kidron Valley, it's on a major fault line, and we're expecting a major earthquake. One Number one theory. Number two theory, there'll be some crazy fanatic that will blow the place up. Like in 1970, an Australian Christian man believed that God told him to do that. Mm. He put dynamite in it. It didn't work. Number three, there will be some kind of ecumenical, multi-religious movement where Jews, Muslims, Christians will all get together. The Muslims will say, yeah, you can park your temple next to our golden shrine. I doubt if that will happen. And, and the, other, the other theory... That could happen, actually. Yeah. That could happen. But the other theory that I'm kind of more and more leaning to, but my opinion is just as good as anyone's here, or bad, is that um, the way that... Remember the story of Pharaoh? He kept hardening his heart. He kept hardening in his heart. And so God judged. And the way that the Palestinian Authority are constantly hardening their hearts towards Israel. Donald Trump, he's not, he, you know, he's giving them opportunity, but they're not playing, playing ball. And when he moved the embassy, he came under a lot of criticism. Remember what he said? He said, the last 30 years, you've tried this plan, you've tried that plan, nothing has happened. We're going to try something new. So you can't please these people. Golda Meir put it this way. She said, the Palestinian people never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> and it's the same today. They are having opportunity after, and they're, they're not playing ball. And maybe it's just going to, maybe it's Donald Trump. Maybe it's someone else. They're just going to say, you, you know what? You had your chance. And maybe they'll get pushed off the Temple Mount. Mm. I don't know. That's, these are all theories and thoughts. But one thing we do know, there will be a structure of some sort on that Temple Mount. And there will be a man who will go in and proclaim himself to be God. And anyone on the earth who does not acknowledge that will die, will not be able to buy or sell and uh, that is the middle of the end of the seven years that will bring human history to its culmination and bring in 
what we are supposedly every day, praying for thy kingdom come. Amen? Okay, we got to close down for now. But, uh, you know, I could listen to you every day of the week for at least an hour. <laughs> Let me say this. Let me say this. There are no notes up here. Did you notice that? I noticed that, and, and I'm trying not to covet. Thank you very much. Wow. Because you're the real deal. It's from your heart. It's your, you are your message, man. I just wish my wife would say the same thing. I just want to listen to you. <laughs> oh, that's right. Well, you know how that goes. Let's close in a word of prayer. Oh, yeah, I'll pray. And then uh, we'll sing a song, and then you wrap, a, wrap us up with prayer, okay? Father God, thank you for just a wonderful evening. Uh, the truth always sets our hearts free, God, and just uh, on the edge of our seats listening to finally just somebody who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> and uh, we, about these kinds of issues, Lord, because there's all kinds of things out there, but uh, to be able to go back and uh, understand in context your promises, your people, the calling of God, the wrestling it out, the working out our salvation with fear and trembling. God, uh, you've spoken on so many levels to all of our hearts about areas that where you intend to bless us, not to harm us, but to give us a hope and a future. So we ask for your blessing tomorrow morning, two services. Lord, let us come out prepared to hear the word of the Lord and to put it into practice and be blessed. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.